Remember, freedom is a gift from God. Choose to accept it, guard it, nourish it, share it with your loved ones. Don't let anyone take it from you. Choose to be free. Learn how to choose freedom with your host, Dr. Baruch Platner. Uh, welcome to the show, my friends. So we uh, have witnessed uh, a historic event, the likes of which uh, very rarely happen in our lifetimes. And in fact, uh, this one uh, has never happened in my lifetime, and I'm 57 years old. And uh, that event was the signing of a peace agreement between Israel and two Sunni Arab countries from the Arabian Peninsula, which is the uh, birthplace of Islam, uh, United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. And the reason that I'm saying that uh, this event uh, is unprecedented in my, in my lifetime is because of the nature of uh, the peace that was signed. Uh, uh, Israel previously signed peace agreements with two countries, uh, two Arab Sunni countries, uh, a major one, Egypt, and uh, a fairly minor one, Jordan. Uh, in both cases, uh, one was uh, in the 80s and the other one was um, in the 90s, so, so something like early, early 80s to early, and the other one early 90s, Egypt early 80s and Jordan early 90s. In both cases, uh, these uh, uh, peace agreements uh, involved major territorial concessions by Israel. More so in the case of Egypt when the, the entire Sinai Peninsula, which is three times larger by area than the rest of Israel and has tremendous oil reserves uh, and then it was an area in which Israel has made major infrastructure uh, investment since it uh, occupied it, if you want to call it that, from, from Egypt in 1967 was given back in its entirety to Egypt. So Sinai Peninsula is a place I know very well because my high school trip was there just before it was uh, given back uh, in... Um, uh, so my, my high school trip was in 1981, and I believe the peninsula went back to Egypt in 1982. And prior to that, I was there many times with my parents, just camping on the pristine beaches, uh, shoreline of the Red Sea, and snorkeling there and all that. Well, Israel has made major, major infrastructure investments, paved roads, and so on, that all went back to Egypt in, uh, like I said, in, in 1982. Uh, in the case of Jordan, <clears throat> there was also a territorial um, uh, concession, a smaller one, because that border was not disputed in Jordan. The, the territory that was taken from Jordan in 1967 is the so-called West Bank, or as we call it, Judea and Samaria, and Jordan didn't want that territory. And the reason they didn't want it was because it's populated by Palestinians, whom nobody wants. And uh, Jordan has um, a, a Palestinian majority population, which is ruled over, lorded over by the, Hash <coughs> the Hashemite house of uh, King Abdallah and um, 
uh, that houses uh, are Bedouins from uh, the Arabian Peninsula. And the last thing that King uh, wanted was more Palestinians in his country, okay, because the Palestinians don't like him and his family one bit. So anyway, Jordan renounced their rights to those areas, uh, saying that that should be a future Palestinian state. And so the only areas uh, that were given back to them, if you want to call it again that, um, in uh, the early 90s, when that peace agreement was signed, uh, had to do with um, a small a small strip of land further south, you know, south from the, south of the Dead Sea, in what we call the Arava, or, or that uh, desert, low-lying desert part of the uh, Syrian-African uh, rift valley. So just a few uh, hundred meters, maybe. But still, still, it was an important territory and concession. But then there was another point. Both of these peace agreements, that is not, and that's a point that's not talked much uh, by today's pundits, even those who mentioned this, uh, pe those peace agreements that uh, were signed under uh, the tutelage of President Trump, even those who are uh, less afflicted by TDS or not afflicted at all by the Trump derangement syndrome, they still don't mention that the previous two uh, peace agreements that were signed all involved not only territorial concessions uh, from the side of Israel, but also uh, had to do with uh, the, the Palestinian so-called question. In other words, the question of those Arabs that reside west of the River Jordan. The, the agreement with Egypt um, took a while to negotiate with more than 9% of the time going to negotiating some sort of addendum or supplement uh, dealing with the so-called Palestinian question. The deal between Egypt and Israel was actually not difficult to negotiate because Anwar Sadat, the Egyptian president at that time, basically said that, if, that he had to get back every inch of uh, the Sinai Peninsula or bust. And he did. Uh, how, however, by the way, Egypt, uh, the Gaza Strip, prior to 1967, was also Egyptian. And just like the Jordanians didn't want the Palestinians in uh, the so-called West Bank, Anwar Sadat did not want the Palestinians in Gaza. So he took the rest of Sinai, which is beautiful and substantially empty of people and rich in resources, and left alone or left for Israel to deal with uh, the Gaza Strip, which is very densely occupied by Palestinians. Um, but nevertheless, uh, the agreement between Israel, Israel and Egypt dealt very heavily with uh, the Palestinian question. And I remember uh, very well the kind of the, the, the suspense and the negotiation around that agreement, and it all had to do with the Palestinian question rather with anything rather than anything having to do with Egypt or Israel. Um, the, Jor the Jordanian peace agreement was a derivative or an outcome of the Oslo Accords in which Israel uh, brought back from Tunisia the arch-terrorist uh, uh, Yasser Arafat and his uh, cohort of uh, bloody murderers and uh, gave them weaponry and ensconced them in uh, in the Gaza Strip and also in uh, the, the so-called West Bank in Ramallah 
and uh, created this whole uh, Palestinian Authority. Uh, without this, there would have been no peace with Jordan, and peace, of, peace with Jordan was substantially uh, an outcome, or, or uh, it was just a part of the deal with the Palestinians. So those two peace agreements are nothing like the peace agreement that was negotiated uh, uh, by the Trump administration, uh, kind of by his um, overarching idea of diplomacy and uh, under the tutelage of uh, Jared Kushner and um, uh, the pri Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, the peace that was negotiated uh, by them involved and was signed, signed just this week, involved no territorial concessions between um, Israel uh, and, and, and those countries which don't share a border, uh, and involved no uh, issues revolving around the so-called Palestinian question. In other words, these uh, uh, agreements do not mention <coughs> the Palestinians at all. Okay? Um, and there is even a, a third difference, and that is that um, e both Egypt and Jordan uh, signed this peace, those peace agreements with Israel that they, that they signed kind of reluctantly. They didn't want to. And, and ever since then, it was a rather cold peace. Um, early on, Israelis did travel to Egypt. My parents went there. Uh, but they were not met with uh, a very warm reception. And the same is true with Jordan. And then after just a short while, it became so cold that that tourism substantially stopped. So right now, the peace between Israel and Egypt and Israel and Jordan is more of an armistice than, a, than peace. Uh, yes, the, the, there are um, ambassadors of the two countries that are kind of exchanged. In other words, there's a Jordanian ambassador in Tel Aviv, unfortunately not in Jerusalem. And uh, there is Israeli ambassador in Amman, and same goes with Cairo. But there are no Jordanians in Israel. There are no Israelis in Jordan outside of uh, the ambassad ambassadorial staff. Uh, and the same goes uh, uh, for, for, for Egypt. So those are kind of more like um, armistice agreements or, uh, uh, I mean, at most you could say very cold peace agreements. Well, it looks like with the United Arab Emirates and with Bahrain, those are going to be very warm peace agreements. Uh, I was just scanning my Twitter feed this morning and I saw a tweet from Prime Minister Netanyahu that um, said that United Arab Emirates has this investment fund uh, that manages hundreds of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars, and it has never, oh, it, it has never to this point in time opened um, uh, an office or a branch office outside of the United Arab Emirates. Well, guess what? They're going to open one, the first one ever, and it's going to be in Israel. So these two countries are very keen on uh, having a warm peace with Israel. That, uh, you know, um, once this epidemic and everything else subsides or, or goes away or whatever happens to it, uh, there is going to be travel uh, between Israel and uh, UAE and Bahrain for tourism, for business, both ways, which will be also something quite unprecedented.
so this piece is a very Trumpian piece, which is very different from those are two other peace agreements from 30 and 40 years ago, uh, because it is based not on some sort of warped uh, worldview of uh, ideological mumbo-jumbo, but it's based on real hard-nosed realpolitik, in other words, on a, a real calculus of the interests of both Israel and the two uh, uh, Gulf states. And that's what makes it utterly unique. I mean, I, 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 I was not uh, making it up and I was not exaggerating when I said that this, those peace agreements that were signed just this week had no precedent in my lifetime. And it's not a short lifetime. Um, however, of course, they were underplayed uh, to say the least. I mean, it's just ridiculous. There was a, on, on, on the very next day of the signing of those uh, historic peace agreements, uh, the press corps in the, brief, in, in the White House daily press briefing did not bother to ask a single, and I repeat, single question about those peace accords uh, from uh, Kayleigh McEnany, uh, Trump's spokesperson, spokeswoman, and uh, I was watching uh, President Trump's um, um, press conference live and the same thing happened. They were asking him ridiculous questions about masks and whatnot, but not a one about uh, those peace, uh, uh, peace accords, even though he kind of managed to put it in there. So, and we all know, it's, I'm far from being the first to say, to say it, that had Obama been involved in those peace agreements, he would have been uh, you know, he would have been uh, promoted on every show in America and there would have been countless um, punditry, effusive praise and so on and so on. But let me tell you uh, folks, I mean Obama uh, was not capable, I mean physically, mentally and every other way of uh, sponsoring and producing such a peace agreement and more importantly he wouldn't want to. He wouldn't want to. I mean, uh, what Obama wanted was to hurt and actually destroy both America and Israel. And I guess you can add to it those Gulf states that just made peace with Israel. He wanted to destroy all of these countries that are involved in it. Right? So when you look at these peace agreements, who is signed? Israel and Bahrain, Israel and U UAE, and then... Uh, United States, uh, represented by President Trump, is signed as a witness. Well, guess what? Obama hated all three. I mean, and even all four. He hated Israel, he hated United Arab Emirates, he hated Bahrain, and he hated America. And he hated those entities viscerally, in other words, from his viscera, meaning from his uh, gut. Okay, so from his intestine, he, has, he hated those entities and by the way the entity that he hated most the entity that he hates most the entity that he cannot tolerate cannot stand is the united states of america and there is a very good reason for that which is that uh, on a genetic level obama is the product of two america hating people uh, first his father 
who was not an American by any stretch of the imagination, which is why uh, Mr. Obama is not an African-American, um, not even half an African-American, because the black part of Obama is not American and did not go through the experience of being brought to America as a slave. His dad was uh, a radical anti-colonial communist who hated the fact that Kenya, where he comes from, was a, uh, a British colonial possession. Okay, And uh, the second half of uh, Obama's genes comes from, uh, come from his mother, who was a radical American communist who hated everything that America has ever stood for, i.e. free markets, individual freedoms, and the idea of a country that is based on those values and is based on the belief in the Creator, i.e. in God. So she, Obama's mother, hated those things, as did her parents, I believe. And Obama himself is the product of these uh, two influences, which is why he hates America. And that's something that's very important to understand. More on that in the next segment. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Did you know the average person spends 26 years of their life sleeping? The real troubling statistic is that we spend seven years of our life trying to get to sleep, struggling with racing minds, tossing and turning. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Sleep is proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance. Until now, most sleep supplements haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's Healthy, C-E-L-L dot com slash sleep. Welcome back to the show, folks. Um, we ended up the previous segment with um, uh, kind of making the point that um, uh, President Obama, ex-President Obama, is an America hater. In other words, he viscerally, from his very intestines, hates America and wants to destroy her and has done everything he possibly could uh, to destroy her uh, and wanted to hand the baton over to Hillary, who would have finished the job. This is not something that uh, I'm sure you find particularly innovative, me saying so. But I want to tie it to 
uh, the historic, unprecedented uh, peace agreements that were signed between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain <coughs> under uh, President Trump's uh, kind of tutelage uh, this week, and uh, to the ridiculously downplayed um, reaction to them by America's mainstream media and by <coughs> America's uh, kind of establishment anti-Trump establishment, let's call it that. And, uh, you know, you would uh, have to wonder, you know, <coughs> excuse me, I would have to wonder, like, um, you know, why? I mean, okay, so they have Trump derangement syndrome, we all know that. Uh, they hate Trump, they hate him. They hate Trump, they hate his whole administration, they hate Ivanka, they hate, Jer they hate Jared, they hate the whole lot of them. But still, you know, um, it's not a great look for them on the eve of a, a presidential election to be to be ignoring peace and you know even saying actively disparaging peace because you know I mean most people kind of assume that you know a peace agreement is a good thing you know and 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 why would you go out of your way to disparage it? that's that's not a necessarily a winning electoral strategy. So why, why do they do it? Why are they, like, you know, all the Obama flunkies like Ben Rhodes and, and so on, why are they going out of their way to, 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 to disparage, actively disparage, not say, oh, you know, that's not that important. Nancy Pelosi called it a distraction. Okay. That's, that's not just saying, oh, that's, that's nice. You know, she could have said, well, you know, I, you know, a, a, a skilled politician like Pelosi can always say something like, well, you know, it's always good when countries sign peace agreements or normalization agreements, but, you know, we hope that the Palestinians will be brought into the fold and we feel like this agreement should have addressed this issue, uh, you know, in a more strident way. Something like that. Okay. And most you know, Americans would look at that and say, okay, well, that's, that's fine, that's fine. That's not, clearly not an endorsement, but we understand, you know, Trump is her political enemy, she doesn't want to give him credit, but, you know, she's still saying peace is peace, it's a good thing. But she didn't do that. She said it was a distraction, which is a ridiculous thing to say, right? Because American... America has massive, massive interests in the Middle East, right? America has massive interests, and especially on the Arabian Peninsula. America has massive interests in keeping the oil shipping lanes open in uh, uh, the Persian or Arabian Gulf, however you want to call it, which, on which both Bahrain and United Arab Emirates sit. They sit on that shore, right? <coughs> So, it's, uh, uh, this is one of the key interests of America, even if it is fully, like now, uh, energy self-sufficient, America still has major interests in making sure that oil flows to its allies, like Japan, like Australia, like Europe, and so on. And, uh, you know, I, it's true what President Trump says that America's over-involvement in the, in the Middle East was a mistake, but at the same time, America as a global trading power and as the sole real superpower in the world today cannot just ignore one of the most 
resource rich and geopolitically important areas in the world. So when there is peace signed among major players in that area, that's a major accomplishment of any administration. So saying that's a distraction is just ridiculous. And it doesn't really accrue to her credit, even, even from an electoral perspective. In other words, it can put, it can put some, some uh, uh, voters off, you know, those elusive, maybe on-the-fence voters in super strategic uh, electoral counties in Florida, uh, Jews maybe, and others may say, well, you know what, we really dislike Trump because of his tweets or whatever other stupid reasons they have to dislike him, but, you know, so we're kind of on the fence, but then Pelosi comes and says, oh, that peace agreement is a distraction, and these people may say, well, you know what, that's crazy, that peace agreement is good, so maybe that'll push him, push them to either stay away or vote for Trump. And she knows this, but nevertheless, she went ahead and said it. So the question is, you know, why? And, and there is an answer. And, and the answer is, uh, on, on, a, on a simple plane, is that this agreement is good, not only for um, Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain, it's also good for America. And Nancy Pelosi is an America hater. In other words, things that are good for America are like a pebble in her shoe. They physically hurt her. And that's important that we understand. This woman is to her core anti-American. Maybe she wasn't always, but she is now. You know, Obama was born in the womb anti-American. I don't know that Nancy Pelosi was, but now she is, now she is. And so anything that's good for America is bad for her, okay? So this agreement, which is good for America, is bad for her. And when she says that's a distraction, when she disparages, disparages it, and when other uh, Democrats do, they basically uh, signal to their base, to, add, to people who vote for them, that they hate America as much as they do. Okay, so this, this election uh, is an election between, is, is the choice is really uh, very clear. On one side is President Trump and his voter base who are America lovers. And on the other side is uh, Biden. I mean, Biden is a clearly uh, a sick individual and unfortunately has no control of his faculties whatsoever. But since they chose to put him as their uh, figurehead, who am I to say no to that? So let's just stick with that. So on the other hand, on the, on the other side is Biden and America haters. So it's an election between America lovers and America haters. And the reason that I'm uh, uh, often down on the long-term prospects of America is that unfortunately there are so many, so many America haters. And even if uh, President Trump wins this election uh, and overcomes the massive, massive fraud, in fact, uh, the word fraud is, is, is you know, as a 
as I'm thinking of it and I'm saying it out loud, it's, it occurs to me that the word fraud is not the right word. What we're going to face after the election is not uh, attempts to steal the election or attempts at fraud, uh, electoral fraud. What we're going to see after the election uh, is an attempt at insurrection. In other words, an attempt at the violent overthrow of elected, and in that case, <clears throat> in this case, newly elected American government. And that's what we're going to face. We're not going to face uh, mere fraud, election fraud. <clears throat> we're going to face <coughs> an insurrection attempt. And actually, uh, Trump was asked about it uh, in his press conference, uh, and he, uh, you know, but he was asked about um, demonstrations. I think he either misunderstood or chose to misunderstand the question because I believe the question had to do with, you know, the ongoing rioting, looting, all that stuff by uh, the insurrectionists in America and their uh, brown shirts. Uh, but uh, Mr. Trump chose to uh, interpret this question not as with regards to what's going on right now, but, but as, as if it dealt with what will happen. In other words, he answered the question about what will happen if he wins the election on November 3rd, and then his victory is followed by these uh, you know, violent activities, in other words, an attempt at overthrowing the government. And um, he said that this will be put down very quickly. So I think he's making plans for that, and that, of course, is a very good thing. But, you know, back to, the, to this point of how many Americans actually hate America, and, uh, you know, I guess we're going to find out. But let's just say on the low side it's 40%. Well, that's an extremely high number, right? I mean, you know, four out of ten Americans hate, hate their country. That's an astounding statistic and yet it appears to be true. And so, you know, the question then becomes, you know, what kind of historical context can this be put in, right? I mean, does that ever happen? Does it ever happen that such a high percentage of a, of a population of a major country not only wants to change its direction or its course or uh, you know quibbles with how things are in the country right now, but begins to actively, physically hate with a burning passion the very foundations, ideological underpinnings, intellectual underpinnings, historical underpinnings on which their country stands, right? I mean, that's what's happened. Four, about four out of 10 Americans hate viscerally from their gut the ideological, historical, philosophical, foundations on which America has been founded and stood for nearly a quarter of a millennium. So the question is, 
well, there's two things. One is we know that regardless of uh, Mr. Trump's victory, hopefully uh, in November, uh, no country can endure for long or really for any period of time. 40% uh, of its uh, residents being diametrically opposed to its founding principles. So the question then becomes, can these anti-American Americans somehow be made to see the error of their, of their ways and reform their thinking? In other words, can they be brought back to accepting and maybe even loving the foundational principles of their country? That's an open question. I think it's a question that's, uh, that deserves an answer and deserves uh, much scrutiny because that's really what counts. But then, uh, of course, the other question is, and maybe on the way to answering that first one, is understanding whether such a, a condition has ever you know, existed elsewhere in the world. And uh, the answer is that at least in one case, yes, it, it did exist <clears throat> about 100 years ago uh, in the, and more, uh, between 150 and 100 years ago, this condition existed in uh, the, the Russian Empire. Which is why the Russian Empire was destroyed. So in other words, the Russian Empire was destroyed from within by its own people, including intellectuals, including generals, including rich people, okay, influential people, <coughs> that wanted to destroy her and did. Okay. So when we think about the Bolshevik Revolution that destroyed uh, Imperial Russia or the Russian Empire, um, now, the Russian Empire uh, and its predecessors, the, <clears throat> the Russian kind of Tsardom, uh, at that point in time already existed close to a thousand years, a full millennium, not just a quarter of a millennium like the US. And nevertheless, these people managed to destroy her in a very short period of time, roughly five decades from the beginning to the end. Um, and that's what's happening in America, it's very similar. And we hope that in America the outcome will be different. So it's important to understand <clears throat> that in Russia, uh, the Bolshevik Revolution was not, <clears throat> and I say emphatically not, brought about by poor, disadvantaged Russians. In other words, it was not brought about by the poor peasants or the poor factory workers, okay? In fact, there is a reason why both Lenin and Stalin considered uh, the Russian peasantry, not only the more successful peasantry, but all peasantry, to be an anti-revolutionary, reactionary element and, and uh, following their victory in the Russian Civil War, they set about substantially destroying the Russian peasant class and with it all of Russia's agriculture, something from which to this day Russia has not recovered. 
Okay, they destroyed the Russian peasant class, even though they knew that with it, they will destroy the Russian agricultural sector, which was the best in the world, and would have to uh, import grain to Russia and other agricultural and food products for the first time ever. They did it with open eyes because they knew that the peasants were not with them. And even if they were just because they were kind of bribed with some promises, <clears throat> once they saw that these promises were nothing but empty words, they would uh, there would be an uprising, a peasant uprising. That's why they set about starving them to death dispersing them from their homes and so on. So, and neither was the Russian Revolution really a revolution of the uh, proletariat, so-called from the city factories, even though there there was more kind of discontent and, and so on. No, the Russian Revolution, just like the American one that's happening now, was led by, <coughs> first of all, it existed in all se se segments of society, um, but it was led substantially by its kind of uh, intellectual classes and more on that in the next segment. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. Welcome back to the show, folks. So in the previous segment, we uh, discussed the historicity or the historical possibility of a very large segment of a population of a major country kind of falling in love, falling out of love and beginning to actively hate the foundational principles and the history of their own country. And that is something that has happened before in a major country and that country was the Russian Empire. Now, the Russian, the Russian Empire as a political entity uh, came into being around the 10th, 11th century um, AD, so about a thousand years ago, um, in a number of uh, Russian cities, Novgorod, <coughs> Kiev, and eventually settled in Moscow. <coughs> and uh, it started as a duchy and then became a kingdom, a kind of a tsardom. Tsar is just a, res a Russian mispronunciation of the word Caesar. Um, and so what, are, what were the foundations of, of that Russia, of, Ru of that Russia that existed for about a thousand years until it was violently overthrown from within by its own people in 1917? 
Well, the foundations of Russia were first and foremost its uh, Greek Orthodox Christian faith. Okay, uh, <clears throat> historically uh, or ethnically, Russians were various Slavic uh, tribes uh, who were uh, organized. Um, into a political entity by uh, a branch of Vikings known as the Rus, R-U-S. And these Vikings uh, <clears throat> formed the first Russian elites and brought with them apparently some iron, uh, you know, sword making and iron uh, technology and became uh, rapidly uh, a serious force but that force was only cemented into a political force when they accepted Christianity. In other words, they, when they were converted to Christianity by uh, monks that were sent uh, over there by, uh, from, from uh, the Byzantine Empire, Greek monks. One of them was Cyril, and to my shame, I forget the other one. But these monks... Um, converted uh, those uh, Russian slash Scandinavian princes, specifically Prince Vladimir, into to Christianity, to their brand of Christianity, which is Greek Orthodox, which was Greek Orthodox Christianity, and uh, created for them an alphabet that was substantially modified uh, Greek with some letters borrowed from the Hebrew which these monks also knew to represent some Russian sounds that do not exist in the Greek, substantially the sound for sh, like S-H and tz, like T-S and so on. They do exist in the Hebrew, they do not exist in, uh, in Greek in such a way, so they um, just borrowed a few letters from the Hebrew, and that's how we got the Russian Cyrillic alphabet. So, first and foremost, the organizing principle of the Russian kingdom, later empire, was Orthodox Christianity. The other um, foundational principle was monarchy. So, the idea of an all-powerful monarch, a monarch who is seen as a father for his people, in fact, um, the Russians referred to their Tsars, including to the last one, Nicholas II, uh, by the name uh, Batushka. Batushka means little father. Batushka is what you would call your father, literally, but in, an, uh, in, in a term of endearment. You know, um, it's a diminutive. <clears throat> so, Russian is such a rich language and there are many many words for father, more formal, less formal, uh, with meaning that is aggressive and negative, and also with meaning that is positive and endearing. Well, Batushka is both endearing and diminutive. It's, it's, um, <clears throat> it's a term of uh, extreme intimacy. And that's how the Russians called their Tsars. So the Tsar was this figure of uh, a loving father, okay, a kind and loving father. And if 
there were policies enacted by the Tsar that the Russians didn't like, and of course there were. The, the, the idea was that it always was, you know, the Tsar fell under the influence of evil advisors and things like that, right? But the Tsar himself was always above reproach and loved by the people. And even Nicholas II, who was dethroned and later murdered, was loved by the Russian people, by most of them. Okay, so the foundation of the Russian state, and that's why their symbol is this two-headed eagle, is very simple. It's the Russian Orthodox Church and absolute monarchy. So in Russian, vera pravoslavna, vlast samodzerzhavna. It rhymes. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> this, um, those foundations held for close to a thousand years and led Russia to, uh, to grow from a rather insignificant entities far out on the extreme eastern edges of the European continent into a world, um, into one of the world's superpowers, more powerful than America at that time, in the late 19th century. And yet, substantially at the peak of its powers, Russia was already being undermined by its own people, substantially its own intellectuals, who fell out of love with her, started hating her, and did everything they could, including by violent means, like assassinating the Tsars, uh, to basically destroy her. Okay. And why did why that happened um, is definitely beyond the scope of this short broadcast, and I don't know that that question can be answered in its entirety. But what we can, in any case, but what we can address is why was it that the Russian establishment that was pro-Russia, and there were many Russian intellectuals, writers, and so on, who loved Russia. There were many who hated her, but there were many who loved her. A situation very similar to what we have in America today. And the question is, how come the, how come the, the segment of the Russian uh, elites that loved Russia did not persevere and eventually lost the fight? Well, uh, that we can address maybe uh, to some degree even in the remaining 10 minutes of this broadcast and see if it means anything to the America of today. What happened in Russia was that um, the, those elites that loved her, <clears throat> they were somewhat lackadaisical. In other words, they had this laissez-faire principle. It was inconceivable to them that 
their counterparts. I mean, people that they went drinking with in one of the many, many <clears throat> fancy drinking and eating establishment in Moscow and St. Petersburg, people who whom they knew from birth and went to high school with and served in the military with or in the civil service and whose you know sisters they dated and so on or vice versa they could not conceive that these people actually really hated Russia hated its intellectual and historical underpinnings and wanted to destroy her uh, or, or at least to, as Obama put it, radically transform her. They underestimated uh, the fervor with which these people hated Russia. They could not understand <clears throat> that they hated Russia with the same fervor, if not more, than they themselves loved her. So when there were two successful attempts and one unsuccessful against Russians, Russian Tsars, and when, uh, or was it one successful and one unsuccessful, I'm, if I made a mistake, then I, I beg your forgiveness, but certainly there was at, at least one Tsar, Alexander II, who was murdered, and um, Alexander III, there was an attempt on his life in which uh, Lenin's brother participated and, and for which he was thereafter hanged. Um, but those people who, those Russian elites who loved Russia, they saw in all of this substantially a kind of a criminal activity. And they deployed Russia's law enforcement organs to deal with it. <clears throat> so in other words, they uh, when chasing after people like, you know, Lenin or uh, his real name, Ulyanov, that family, and people like Stalin, you know, Joseph Jugashvili, his real name, and people of that nature, and they caught them. They, they, it wasn't, they were not difficult to get, to, to get a hold of. They were not making themselves invisible by any stretch of the imagination. So they caught them, they sent them to Siberia, or in Lenin's case, uh, even uh, out of the country, but then they showed up again because they escaped or because Russia's enemies, like in the case of Hitler, uh, sorry, Lenin, the Germans brought him back so he could um, undermine Russia from within and so on. So even though their activities that, that had to do with like this policing were not unsuccessful uh, in the kind of small scheme of things, in the large scheme of things, they meant nothing. So the Russian elites, that the, the Russia-loving Russian elites, failed to understand the <clears throat> fundamental and fatal nature of the threat that they were facing. They failed to understand that the people that wanted to destroy Russia meant what they were saying. Every, every word of it. It was inconceivable to them. And that's why they did not take the steps that were necessary to stop them. They did not take the steps that were necessary to address this rot that was building in their otherwise very successful, very powerful country. 
And I think America is following, unfortunately, very much in Russia's footsteps. I see so many people on Twitter from our side of the aisle, if you want to call it that. In other words, American patriots, people who love America, kind of poo-poo, for lack of a better word, but really it's a, it's a good one. They're poo-pooing the forces that are arrayed, arrayed against us. You know, they're easy to poo-poo, okay? Because they look ridiculous. They have, you know, stupid tattoos and piercings and they dye their hair in <clears throat> lime green. If they're women, they take their shirts off, whether we want to see what's under them or not. They, uh, if they're men, they're, <clears throat> they all look like uh, a small poke in the stomach with an index, fin index finger would fold them over and done deal. So it's, they're easy to poo-poo. But by the way, so were the Russian, okay, so-called revolutionaries. Hitler, I mean, again, I keep, say, I keep saying Hitler, but I mean Lenin. Those two were very much alike. Uh, Hitler learned all he knew from Lenin. Anyway, Lenin was, you know, he was a little guy, ugly, short, with those Asian features that he inherited from his Kalmyk, like Mongolian grandfather. He wore dirty clothes, soiled, uh, you know, um, soiled jackets. Uh, he looked like a complete and utter nobody. Stalin was a Georgian, was born in a mud hut. What Russian, you know, serious person, intellectual, general, engineer, you know, what, what, what serious Russian could, be, could believe that some Georgian born in a mud hut is going to overthrow the Tsar? Okay, or even uh, Lenin, who was born in, uh, in Simbirsk, a provincial city, kind of like Topeka, Kansas, you know, to a, to a family of a school teacher, school principal, would overthrow the, the Russian government. Who could believe that? Well, they should have believed it. They should have taken these people seriously. And we in America, we should take all these Ben Rhodes and all these little <clears throat> rats scaring around and um, mouthing all kinds of nonsense about America and about Trump and about American history, like, you know, this 16, uh, 16, what is it, 1619 project. No, we all say, well, that's just crazy stuff, right? But no, we should not disregard it. We should not laugh at it. These people are deadly serious. We should take them at their words. We should have taken Obama at his word that he wanted to, to, to fundamentally transform, which is exactly the equivalent of destroy America. <coughs> okay, when you fundamentally transform a country, you destroy it. It's a mathematical identity, not even equality, an identity. It's when in mass we use not two, but three parallel lines to denote that this is not something, you know, it's not 2 plus 2 equal 4. It's something that's exactly identical to the, when the left side is exactly identical to the, to the right side. And fundamental transformation is identical to destruction. When the Bolsheviks fundamentally transformed Russia out of being a God-fearing country based on a thousand years of tradition into whatever came next, they destroyed her. And they destroyed her forever, it's never coming back.
Obama attempted to do the exact same thing to, to America with considerable success, even though he hasn't finished the job, thank goodness. And what the people that are now running against President Trump are trying to do is to finish that job. They're trying to fundamentally transform America once and for all, i.e. destroy her. Let's not let them. Stay free, stay free my friends. See you next time.